Uh, well, good morning, Veritas Church, uh, and welcome. If you uh, don't know who I am, uh, my name's Trey, and I uh, have the privilege and honor to serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, for those of you that might be joining us for the first time, or maybe you're coming back to us after a while, I know it's PCS season, and a lot of you know, looking around town to see where you might want to find a church home. Uh, we're here today right in the middle of a sermon series uh, in the book of Micah. Uh, and this is the, the halfway point as we kind of do a summer in the minor prophets. And so uh, I'm just really excited that uh, I get to share uh, this chapter with you this morning. Uh, I'm really excited that uh, the other pastors have given uh, me their confidence to share this with you. Um, you know, we can talk about their judgment a little bit later, uh, but that's okay. You can email Ryan at ryan at veritasfayetteville.com on that one. Um, but uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, and before I get into the kind of a recap of where we are, I'm going to just uh, pray for us one more time that uh, God open our heart and that we hear uh, this good news for us this morning coming out of Micah chapter 4. Uh, so Father, uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather uh, with your saints together, together, part of your church. Lord Jesus, um, the only reason we can do this right now, the only reason any of us in this room uh, can gather and to look towards you is because of the work that you did on the cross, elevating yourself high above so that we could all come and taste and see the goodness of your gospel. And so I just thank you for that and help me to uh, preach just that good news, coming of your kingdom this morning. In name I pray. Amen. All right, so uh, Micah, so far, has been empowered by the Spirit to, uh, you know, the last few weeks through chapters 1 and 3, bring a lot of uh, conviction and condemnation, if you will, to Jerusalem, uh, to Judah and Israel, right? Um, this book is a composition of oracles, right, by Micah, and uh, in 1 through 3, um, the prophet has been calling the people to recognize their sin, to recognize the ways in which they haven't been living up to their side of the covenant, and reminding them of what that means. Because in that covenant, God promises two things, right? He promises discipline and deliverance, right? Um, and so Micah has been, you know, coming to this point where in each of the chapters we see him pointing towards that discipline. And this morning, here in chapter 4, uh, as we open this up, um, we're going to get a different picture, right? The other chapter has been pretty straightforward. This morning, we're opening with deliverance. We're opening with a promise of a coming kingdom. And so go ahead and open your Bibles with me to chapter 4, um, the book of Micah, and we're going to read the very word of God for us this morning. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for, the, for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, Neither shall they learn war any more. They shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. 
and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. And those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant. And those who are cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship, the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? The pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, but there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. All right, yeah, so um, like I said, uh, this it's a little bit different, right? Um, it's not uh, oracles and prophecies of condemnation of the current actions of Israel and Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, this is uh, a prophecy of future time and a prophecy of the imminent struggles of the people of God. And uh, as I was preparing for this sermon the last couple of weeks, uh, and really kind of this week it brought home, I really needed this, but I found a, a wonderful quote in one of the, the commentaries that uh, Ryan let me borrow. And uh, it's, it's, that quote states that uh, this little book, being Micah here, uh, links the future of the world to the people of Israel. Looking back to the promises made to Abraham, Micah also looks forward to a time in which the temple and the king of Israel will dominate the world and produce everlasting shalom. And I think that's just really important for us because when we think about why do we need to hear this message this morning and why did the people in Judah need to hear this message, and it's that reminder, right? It's that reminder of what the covenant promises. It's the reminder of what is at the end. It's everlasting peace shalom brought about by God. All of Micah pivots around this chapter in a way. God's promise. Promise of his rule that provides everlasting wholeness, right? That's what shalom kind of means. It's all the missing pieces in your life come together in one, fulfilled by God. So it's a, it's a pretty welcome change of pace, right? Uh, especially from after last week, uh, from all the condemnation. Um, and so, uh, that's not the only thing, though, in this chapter. And so uh, before we kind of start digging into each of the, the pieces, what I want to do is just kind of outline where we're going today. And so first we're going to chat, mainly in verses 1 through 8, about this promised kingdom and how God is going to assemble it, the people that God is going to bring into that kingdom. And then we're going to see at the tail end, the back half, if you will, of uh, Micah chapter 4, uh, two oracles that deal specifically with uh, the people of God and how uh, 
in these oracles, in these instances of the issues that they were coming, they were being reminded of this good promise. They'll be reminded of God's deliverance to come. Um, chapter 4 is all about the good news of the kingdom. All about God acting, not human acting. Right? Um, and that's why we need to hear it this morning, because of our sin. Then, as of now, we always want to default the things that we can build, the things that we can solve with our own hands. And God is telling us, reminding us, that the things that are eternal, the things that really matter, you can't solve with your hands. Only he can do that. So turn with me now to verses 1 and 2. right? And so or even uh, those of you that aren't super familiar maybe with Old Testament prophecy, uh, the one thing that you'll probably immediately uh, zone in on or is that phrase, in the latter days. Um, you know, it's uh, super specific, right? Um, you know, what does that mean? Uh, but this is a common term, right, in the Old Testament, or uh, terms like this are pretty uh, common to the idea that um, there is a future point at the end of history, a culmination, if you will, in which uh, all of the promises of God will come true, and history will come to a close and will exist in a, in a different way, a different world that God is bringing about, a re restoration of relationship. Um, and this, in the biblical story, is characterized by the second coming of Christ, right? The second coming of Jesus. He's going to come in uh, and rule in a, in, a, in a direct way. Now, depending on your eschatology, or um, if you don't know that term, or I'm familiar with that term, your theology of end times, um, how we get there, the, the kind of the characteristics of what the latter days look like and key events can differ a bit and still be biblically faithful. But uh, this morning, I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, what I really want us to focus in on, like I said, is why we need to hear this good news. Why the prophet Micah is being given this word from the Holy Spirit, both for the people back then and then for us for all time. Right? So, as a recap also of, you know, this promise, this covenant, God had chosen a people. He chose a people in Israel, right? First, he chose a small family, and then he chose a, a larger group, right? And he set them apart for his purpose, part of a, a great rescue plan, if you will, uh, to display his glory. And up until this point, uh, the leaders of Israel and Judah have not really been fulfilling their part of the covenant. And part of that um, that covenant was that, you know, they would proclaim the law, the, they would proclaim, the prophets would proclaim the word as revealed by God, and that their leaders would administer in love and justice. And uh, we've seen up to this point, those things weren't happening. Because if those things had been happening, uh, we'd have a different picture of Israel. We'd have a kingdom that looked more like what God's kingdom looks like. His image bearers would be showing his glory. But pretty much from the, almost the very beginning, um, right, right after King David, his son King Solomon, we started really messing up there. Right? We really started messing up the kingdom. And this eventually led to a split in the kingdom and eventually led to you know, stacking and stacking of, of sin and consequence until eventually what's going to happen is that uh, the whole kingdom is going to go into exile. But here, right, right here in these first four verses, we're going to get this picture of what it looks like 
when God's kingdom is restored. Because even though exile happens throughout the story, God still has this promise hanging in the future. God's still saying that this is going to happen. In verses 1 through 2, we get a picture directly of what it looks like when God rules his people. Not only is the kingdom restored, but humanity itself is restored, blessed by God's presence. And that blessing flows out not just from the Israelites, not just from the people of Judah, the 12 tribes, it flows outward to all nations. And so the way this flows and the way it goes out, right, we have this image here of a mountain, the mountain of the Lord being lifted up that all people are going to be drawn to. And this is one of a, uh, an enduring image that's all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, mountain is often uh, said in the same breath as the house of the Lord or the temple, right? The Mount Zion, the Temple Mount. And while we're not going to have time um, to trace this image across all of the Bible, unless you want to you know, maybe you want to spend about five hours with me after this. We'll, we'll do that, but not right now. Um, it's still important to talk about this significance here because this image isn't just important for the Bible. It's important for uh, ancient Mesopotamia in general. Uh, a lot of ancient Mesopotamian people groups thought of mountains as being places that are close to God. And here, God is reminding his people that it's not just through his temple and through Jesus, his presence, that his law is going to go out. But that law is going to reign supreme over everything else. His mountain is going to reign supreme over any other systems of religion, any other beliefs, any other false deities, any other philosophies that are out there. It's going to be the most preeminent thing in human history and beyond, right? And uh, some of the, the kings of the time period in particular the king of Assyria, we're going to have some thoughts about that, and we're going to get to that here in the latter half of, of the sermon. Um, but God here, through Micah, is giving a rebuttal to everyone. No matter what you do, no matter what you think, at the end of days, all of it will pale in comparison to what I have to say. All of it will lead nowhere, whereas my word leads to the only place that matters, which is peace and shalom. And so, what does it look like, right, when that goes out into the people? So we have verse 3 and 4. What is God's rule looking like? God's rule is attracting other people because as he goes out and he rules directly, his judgments will be complete, right? He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There'll be no cause for conflict anymore in God's kingdom. There'll be no cause for dispute because his word will be the last word. Not just because he has all the power in the universe, but because all of us will recognize the goodness of his judgment. It'll be indescribable, undisputable. We'll accept it full on. And because of this, because of his justice rolling out through the universe, every person will get to sit under their own vine and their own fig tree. We'll take our weapons, the things that we have used historically to solve our problems, and we're going to beat them into implements for farming. Because, uh, you know, 
you know, news alert, uh, there'll still be work to do in the kingdom of the Lord. We'll still have to farm, apparently, but, you know, that's okay. Um, I like a little bit of sweat by my brow, but what we'll have is our own, our own vine and our own fig tree, and this denotes a humble sufficiency that's being provided to us, not a sinful excess. Um, there'll be a lot of, of teachers out there, a lot of, of messages promise prosperity, they promise a kingdom that belongs to you, riches, but what God is offering is relationship. What God is offering is sufficiency here in his new kingdom. And this image is a direct rebuttal against uh, the kingdoms of the world, the direct rebuttal of the power structures that want to solve their problems through a sword, that want to dominate, that want to conquer, and that want to funnel prosperity and rich and you know, food and wealth all one place, and that's up towards the top, right? Either to a single person or to a group of people. God is rebutting all of the different structures that our fallen world currently works by and worked by back then. And the prophet is bringing us back now from that future peace to the current situation with the words of verse 5. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, that we will walk in the name of the Lord forever. He's bringing us back from the future perfect to the current now, and reminding us that even though that we walk, we, God's people that belong to him, walk with God. Not everyone does so. Reminding us the fallenness of the world that we have to actually live in. So, God has shown through Micah the end result of his promise. He's reminded us of what that promise is. But there's more, right? There's the whole rest of the chapter. Uh, and in verse 6 through 8, we see how God is planning on populating his kingdom, right? So turn with me to verses 6 and 7. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. And those whom I have afflicted and the lame, I will make the remnant. And those who are cast off, strong nation. The Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. You know, the people of God at this time had taken for granted uh, their status as chosen, and they'd forgotten that they didn't earn this place themselves. God had pulled them out of obscurity. God had taken them from Abraham, a moon worshiper, and said, hey, I'm going to place my covenant with you, and through you I'm going to bless the whole earth. Through you and your family, I'm going to create a kingdom that shines forth my glory and is blessing to all. But over time, because humans are humans, they forgot this, right? And that's why Micah needs to get this reminder. Because they forgot this, and in forgetting, they forgot about the other part of the covenant, the discipline, that when they turn away from their Lord, when they turn away from God and seek lesser things, lesser deities, seek to solve things themselves, that God would turn their face away, his face away. In this, we see that, that even though that there are those that have turned away from the Lord, those who have been afflicted by God, as he surrenders them over to the consequence of their sin as a part of his judgment, if they turn back to him, he will gather them up. He'll gather all who need him the most and bring them into his kingdom. 
This last verse here, this verse 8, this connector piece, it also reminds the people of God's promise to David. God's going to do all of this through a very specific person, a king, promised way back to David, someone that's going to rule on his throne. A king who comes from this line will sit on the throne of all of Israel, not just Judah, right? Because at this point in time where Micah is prophesying, remember the two kingdoms have been split. But someone will sit on the throne of all of Israel, and that person will enact the blessing to the nation. And that person is Jesus. Jesus, the descendant of King David, who ascends to the throne when he ascends to the cross. A person who comes in as God fulfills both God's covenant and as man fulfills our side of the covenant and then ascends to the the throne and represents us with the Father. And so as we are bringing that bridging gap, that, that promise of a king, we now come to these two final oracles, right? These two final sections that turn to the near term for Judah. There are two, one dealing with the not-so-distant future of the exile in Babylon, and the other dealing with an imminent threat, which is the kingdom of Assyria. So, verse 9, you turn with it, it says, Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? That future indicating that Hezekiah is not the king that was promised. Hezekiah, who is the king right now that Micah is speaking to, is not this promised king. There's so many different kings throughout. It wasn't David, it wasn't Solomon, right? It's not, the king's not here yet. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That the pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go into exile, essentially. You shall go into Babylon, There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemy. In verses 1 through 8, God is reminding his people of his promise, completion of the covenant, reminding them that a king will come. Here he's saying quite plainly, that king isn't here yet. You're still subject to the fallenness of the world here and now. In fact, you're still subject to my discipline for all the ways in which you've turned away from me. Not just here, but also in the book of Second Kings, one of Micah's compatriots, one of his contemporaries, the prophet Isaiah, reinforces this prophecy by also stating that King Hezekiah, that the exile in Babylon is coming soon. Not super soon. Hezekiah you know, wipes his brow and says, Phew, at least it's not happening to me, but in the near future. Exile is a consequence of sin, and it's talked about all throughout the Old Testament. It's prophesied many times that exile is going to be the result of idolatry. It's prophesied so many times that you would think that God's people would probably just, you know, get the picture, hey, uh, we should worship God. If we don't worship God, and if we worship ourselves, or if we worship other lesser fake gods, then God, who does exist, is going to turn away from us, and we're going to suffer. He's going to punish us. But they don't get that picture. They don't learn that lesson. And so then you'd figure that God would just get tired of trying to teach it. That God would get tired of disciplining and correcting his people. But kind of the point of the gospel is that God doesn't. When God promises something, whenever he says that this is going to be, it's going to be. God promised that a consequence of idolatry is that he would hide his face. 
But he also promised that when his people turn back, when they repent and turn their face towards him, he would deliver. He promised from the beginning that there would be a final deliverer. We can trust these promises because time and time again, when God is called upon, when his people repent, he does turn back. He does deliver. Right? These people constantly needed saving, and they constantly called out to God to save them, and he delivered every single time. A message reinforced by the final three verses of the chapter. Now, many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand his plan. But he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and they shall devote their plan to devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. This final section of the of the chapter, verses eleven through thirteen, deal with the imminent threat of the time, which is the kingdom of Syria. Um, in some other places in the book, uh, in in the Bible, the Assyrian king Sennacherib uh, nailed it, nailed that name. Uh, openly challenged God. He sends emissaries to King Hezekiah. And he just, you know, trots out all of his victories and says, hey, look, uh, I have come and assembled my armies, and I have marched them all the way here to Jerusalem, and everyone else thought that they were going to stand against me, and uh, they haven't. I have destroyed their temples, I have trampled their local deities, and I'm going to trample you. But if you just open your gates up and come out and just worship with me, worship me, submit to me, then you're going to have peace. You're going to have your own vine. You're going to have your own tree under the rule of Assyria. And Hezekiah, who King Hezekiah, who was faithful to the Lord, who uh, remembered the covenant, looks out there and he sees that, yeah, Assyria had done all those things. And there is absolutely zero way that I'm going to win this battle on my own. Not going to happen in any future sense of my military might, am I going to walk out this, this gate and win against these dudes? And so, in 2 Kings chapter 19, he prays to the Lord. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Hezekiah just, he knew the covenant. He knew the scriptures. He knew the Lord. He keys in on this thing that he didn't need to be reminded of here, but we need to be reminded of, and the people need to be reminded of. That only the God is the living and true God. Everything else is wood and stone to be dedicated to a fire. So it's, it's no, you know, no mystery as to why those other nations fell. It's no mystery why any nation today or any thought you know, structure or philosophy doesn't lead to lasting shalom. There's no mystery as to why any government that exists that promises peace 
eventually it will fail because they're made with these hands. They're wood and they're stone and they'll just burn, right? The Lord offers an eternal kingdom, something eternal, something that, that we don't quite understand. But Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, he didn't understand it either, really. And he prayed for it, though. He just prayed, God, please help so that your glory could be seen. And Sennacherib really didn't know it. Uh, he had no concept of this. And uh, kind of like in the, the parlance of our time, uh, he really didn't know that he was about in, to enter into the find-out phase of his life. Um, but he did. Um, so Sennacherib was really confident in his power, and God just showed him what that was about and what that was worth. Uh, his entire army is decimated, and uh, he went back to Assyria with his tail between his legs and was eventually murdered in his own palace. So uh, that worked out really well for him. Um, God honors his covenant. He honors his promises. He did something that Jerusalem could not do. He did something that King Hezekiah definitely could not do. And he did it in a way that showed the whole world his power and his glory. He says, look, I deliver on my promises. So, if he delivers then, if he delivers in the imminent, he delivers also in the future, in the eternal, right? We've talked a lot about what this passage meant to the people of Micah's time, um, because it, it did mean something very specific within their context. But it can be, you know, really hard to connect that promise of the future kingdom in the first part of the chapter to our lives now and in relevance to the rest of this chapter with these individual oracles. Last week, uh, Pastor Ryan talked about how essential stories are for humans. Like we use them to describe ourselves to each other and we use them to help us understand complexity. And so even like right now, if you stop, pause, close your eyes, maybe think of your favorite story. Make me a movie, song, a book, what have you. Something comes to mind. You know, it's, it's something that's coming to mind right now. It's something you gravitate to. Uh, for me, uh, I really gravitate to stories about plucky heroes that come out of obscurity or maybe hardship or what, what have you, and uh, they go fight a good fight, and they maybe restore a, a little bit of justice here. Uh, and barring that, maybe they just get even with somebody. You know, um, that's pretty much the storyline of uh, every comic book, every novel, every Western ever created by man. You know, you've got your plucky hero, your nameless loner that's going out there and, you know, through their sword, through their effort, restoring a little bit of peace and justice to the world. And there's kind of a little bit of a problem with that, right? Um, because and it's, it's the, the, the warning inherent to this, this chapter. It doesn't last. It doesn't last. And so if I, as a follower of Christ, if I like to imagine a world in which I, like a hero, the, the ones that I, that I consume, you know, the, and I read in my spare time, if I, like these people, try to establish a little bit of justice, a little bit of peace, I'm going to do it, you know, the ones that I gravitate to always happen with either some fisticuffs or a sword. What do you think that that does for my heart. Start to see all problems as being solved by the edge of a knife. All nails need a hammer, right? 
am I able to love others well if the things that I consume, if the things that I desire are violent? Am I pursuing a plowshare or am I pursuing a sword? What stories do you gravitate to? Are they the same? Are you gravitating towards peace and shalom that God gives or something else? Maybe peace that money brings. Maybe, you know, the peace that hard work brings, security that hard work brings. Are you looking at something that someone else has and saying to yourself, man, they have that just because, you know, they have this opportunity and so I can find peace that I don't have that because I don't have that opportunity. There's lots of different ways that, that we, we run, run away from this eternal truth that God's offering us. This oracle this morning, this chapter, points to something so far outside of our experience that we can really miss it. We can read it, we can look at it, but we can really miss it. It points to an eternal thing. Right now, we live in a fallen, broken world, a and already in a not yet, the term that theologians and pastors use to indicate that um, even though there is this future time, we're not quite there yet. But there is good news because Jesus has already started coming, the coming of that future time. Jesus has already brought us into a period of time, the not yet, for his kingdom is inaugurated. The second half of this chapter talks a little bit about some of that, right? Um, the significance about how God doesn't abandon his promise. He promises that not yet. He promises that future kingdom. He promises that whenever we turn away from our sin, that even in the thick of it, that he will deliver. We're not guaranteed um, much in this life, but we are guaranteed the promises of the gospel. Um, in the thick of our darkest time, when the enemy is at the gate, we can, we can trust that God's promises, because all throughout Scripture, he delivers every single time. When we hear other promises, right, other things, other gospels, that promise anything other than shalom, anything other than the peace that Jesus brings, we need to put those things to the side. Whenever you look at the Bible, just one of the things that will, will really build your faith is that if you open up to Matthew chapter 1, you're going to, right there on the page, you're going to see a giant genealogy, which is probably not the most exciting thing you've ever read today, or you will read today, but it's so important to look at that genealogy and then cross-read across the entirety of the Bible, the entirety of the Old Testament leading up to it, and see where time and time again, God fulfills his promise starting all the way back with Adam and Eve. He promises a deliverer. He promises a kingdom, a return to restored relationship with him. And then through a family, through a people, through judges and kings, through you know, prostitutes, through the least of us, he guides all of it to one place, one completion. And that's in King Jesus. Paul says that in Romans, that the whole of creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. We're 
all kind of in this moment of expectation. Jesus entered into our history, entered into our world. He humbled himself, put on flesh, and he began the process that's going to be the future kingdom. We can see this right now. Visible evidence that his kingdom is being built. Right now, all of us are in this room. All of us are hearing his gospel. This thing that was presented to a specific people group, Israelites, and maybe I'm totally wrong, but I don't think there's any of, any of you are Israelites in this room this morning. But um, God gave promise to a specific people. And through that people, he promised he would deliver, he would bless the nation. They weren't living up to it. They, they didn't understand it. And so the next step of the plan, that God came himself, he humbled himself, and he came, and he fulfilled their side of the covenant, and his side of the covenant at the same time, in Jesus. He did the thing that no Israelite could do. He did a thing that no king could do. He did a thing that was miraculous. He fulfilled both sides of an agreement in himself. And then he ascended up onto his throne. And right now, he represents us as king, as high priest, as human, perfected. If you follow him, he sent his spirit down to each and every one of us. So that, that mountain isn't just lifted up and on high in a place in the future where all of us can see in a physical place. No, the mountain has come to you if you follow Jesus. The mountain comes to you. Your Holy Spirit brings the temple down, individual little beacons of hope and life-giving restoration all throughout the world. So that just as in the first part of this chapter, when Mike is saying that all nations will become come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain. It's so unexpected because the mountain is coming to them. It's coming to them through you, follower of Christ. So what does all of this mean, right, for how we do this? How do we walk in the name of our Lord? All throughout the Bible, we see that God loves to work alongside humans. He chose us. He created us. We are to be his image bearers. We are to be his stamp across the whole of this earth. And unfortunately, um, that was a job that we didn't really want at first. Um, we wanted God's job. And so we destroyed that relationship. We destroyed that opportunity. But God graciously gave us an opportunity. He gave us a pathway, a lineage, a person. He completed the way for us through the person of Jesus Christ. So, this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, hear this word and be reminded of eternal things. Don't look towards lesser things to give you peace. Don't look to lesser things to give you hope. Be reminded of what King Jesus' kingdom looks like, of what it looks like in Matthew chapter 4. Whenever King Jesus inaugurated his mission, when he inaugurated his, his preaching, he announced the coming of the kingdom of God. He said, repent. For now is the coming of the kingdom of the Lord, right? And then the next thing he did is he started going out and getting disciples. And then right there in Matthew chapter 5, we see the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about what the kingdom is going to look like. It's going to look like a people that seek all of their security, their hope, their happiness in the Lord. And that through that, they're empowered to go out and to love, to show mercy, to make peace. 
So be reminded of that. As a follower of Christ, love God above all else. Love your neighbor as yourself. You will be empowered to go out among the nations, to spread his temple presence, to bring the mountain to the people. If you're not a follower of Christ, hear this good news. It's good news of eternal things. It's a, it's a good news that can be hard to wrap your brain around. It can be, it's hard for me as a follower of Jesus to really conceptualize a time in which uh, there is no striving, there is no tribulation, there is no heartache. But that is what God is offering. He's offering that in relationship. He's offering it not as a prize, but as a marriage to him to be sought, as a relationship of love in which we honor and seek after the one true ruler God, the one true creator, the eternal king. And he blesses us by being with us as his, we as his people, and him as our king. Pray with me that all this would come true. Lord God, thank you so much for the opportunity to bring your good word this morning. Thank you so much for the opportunity to bring the reality of your promises fulfilled time and time again, of the good news of your gospel fulfilled in our lifetime, fulfilled as each and every one of us go out preaching you, King Jesus, bringing the mountain to the people. Thank you so much, King Jesus, for coming and doing what none of us could do, what no structure, no king, no government can ever do, which is to bring true peace. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be in restored relationship with you. And I ask that as we go out this day in our lives, that we bring that hope, we bring that gospel to others. In my name I pray. Amen.